Hey, coming up on Security Now, Leo reports on vacation, so I get the pleasure of hanging out with Steve Gibson and talking security. Yeah, we're going to talk about the NSA. Yeah, we're going to talk about a zero-day vulnerability from IE. But there is hope in the future, not just from a good television show, but apparently about stronger encryption. All of that and more coming up. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 422, recorded September 18th, 2013. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 175. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite. Whether you have one computer at home or several at your small business, Carbonite backs up your files for you automatically and continually for only $59.99 a year. Try it free at Carbonite.com. No credit card required. Use offer code SECURITYNOW and get two bonus months with purchase. And by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to ProXPN.com slash twit and use the code SN20. It's time for Security Now, the show that helps you stay safe online. I'm Tom Merritt filling in for the vacationing Leo Laporte and very happy to be back doing it with uh, the man himself, Mr. Steve Gibson, the man behind GRC.com, the man I turn to when I want to know what's up in security. Shields up, spin right, been using those things for years. They've saved my bacon. Steve, good to be back on the show with you again. Hey, Tom, you were saying that it was not since last November that we had been doing this, and it was also for a Q&A episode last year. That's so. right. It was 20 Q&A episodes ago. Great to have you back. Well, thank you. It's good to be and here. We has anyone some... heard from Leo? Did he get there? Is he safe? Has there been any communication, or does he just turn just disappear? We haven't heard otherwise, so that's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, ho- yeah, hopefully he doesn't spend too much time. Hopefully he just relaxes, enjoys himself. Yeah, good. Deserves. Well, yeah. that was the whole idea. Absolutely. So we've, got, we don't uh, have, we don't... we've got some interesting stuff today, huh, Steve? Yeah, not a big news week. Uh, it's it's weird. Sometimes we're like, well, in fact, sometimes there's so much to talk about that we just like it pushes any other end of show content off the end. Uh, I've got a, a, some interesting stuff always and uh, some great comments and thoughts, a couple really long pieces, but they were so interesting. I thought, well, we'll have time. So, uh, yeah, I think we'll have a good show. There's always something to say about the NSA these days. So we got something uh, about yes. Uh, and thankfully, well, not thankfully, but uh, for our purposes, there is a zero-day vulnerability for IE we could talk about. Um, <laughs> thank you, hackers, for doing that for our benefit. Let's uh, take a quick break, though, and thank uh, one of our sponsors for today's show, Carbonite. Uh, take a look at your to-do list for today. Is is backing up your files on it? I don't want to lecture you, but it's kind of like flossing and eating your bacon. Well, eating your bacon. Wait a minute. That was a Freudian slip. I eat your vegetables. Eat your bacon, too. You're not alone, though. Lots of people don't back up. But let me make it easier than flossing or eating your Brussels sprouts with something that does it automatically. Carbonite backs up your computer files to the cloud automatically and continually. Whenever your computer is connected to the Internet, you pick your important files. You say, put them there. 
You get unlimited backup space for your PC or Mac, just $59.99 a year. If you run a small business, Carbonite has plans that will back up all of your computers, your servers, and your external hard drives for a low, flat annual fee. And like I said, it does it automatically. It does it in the, it continually in the background, stored safely off-site. And that's the key to me. I, I want to have something stored off off-site. I want to have a backup on-site and, of course, the copy that's actually on your computer. Uh, and if you do have a computer disaster, it's easy to restore those files. Here's the offer. Unlimited backup for your PC or Mac is $59.99 a year. Start your free trial today at Carbonite.com. No credit card required. Uh, remember to use the offer code SECURITYNOW when you do purchase, and you'll get two bonus months free. That's Carbonite.com. Offer code SECURITYNOW. We thank them for their support of the show. All right, Steve, let's uh, start off talking about that zero-day vulnerability. Uh, is it for everyone? How bad is it? Well, it's it's bad enough that anyone, the way, the way I tweeted it this morning, I, I, when I got email from Microsoft last night, um, or I guess actually late, late in the morning yet, uh, yesterday, and finally got around to checking it out. So what I said was, in, in my tweet, new IE zero-day vulnerability being exploited in the wild if you must use IE, you can apply temporary fix it. And then I gave a little bit.ly link. So anyone who's interested, if you check my Twitter feed, you know, twitter.com slash SGGRC, and you'll see uh, my most recent stuff, um, there is a fix it, which they describe as a shim, which will will solve the problem. They're reporting a shiv. that... A shim. Or, uh, okay. Is it a shiv? No, no. That <laughs> would be the that would do that would do the opposite. I think. <laughs> I think. Um, yeah, the vulnerability would be a shiv. That's right. Um, anyway, the shim protects you from the shiv. Yeah. So uh, they're seeing that Microsoft has acknowledged um, the exploitation of IE eight and nine. Although this does affect all versions of IE six through, and they even list eleven, even though it's like not out of the oh, box wow. yet. Yeah, that's just a preview. Uh, so I love this Microsoft speak, the way they write these things. I mean, clearly it's boilerplate, but, but of this they wrote, Microsoft is investigating public reports of a vulnerability in all supported versions of Internet Explorer. Mike, is, is IE6 still supported? I don't I didn't know if, think it, if it, it was. I don't think it is anymore. But anyway, yeah. it, it is on their list of like vulnerable OSs. They and know so many people still use it. They probably just put it on there, yeah. Vulnerable explore, uh, um, uh, products. Anyway, so they said, uh, Microsoft is aware of targeted attacks that attempt to exploit this vulnerability in Internet Explorer 8 and Internet Explorer 9. Applying the Microsoft Fix-It solution, and they give the CVE number, shim, it's, oh, so it's MSHTML, it's, it's in the MSHTML uh, code, shim workaround, prevents the exploitation of this issue. See the suggested action section of this advisory for more information. The vulnerability is a remote code execution vulnerability. The vulnerability exists in the way that Internet Explorer accesses an object in memory that has been deleted or has not been properly allocated. The vulnerability may corrupt memory in a way that could allow an attacker to execute arbitrary code. I, again, this I get a chuckle out of this because they've previously said it does allow an attacker to do this, and attackers are doing this. 
Um, anyway, so they said, in the context of the current user within Internet Explorer, an attacker could host a specially crafted website that is designed to exploit this vulnerability through Internet Explorer and then convince a user to view the website. On completion of this investigation, Microsoft will take the appropriate action to protect our customers. Thank you. As opposed, as opposed to not having right. budget code in the first place, which would have always had them protected. Which may include, they continue, providing a solution through our monthly security update release process or an out-of-cycle security update, depending on customer needs. So we don't have, you know, you can't go to um, Windows Update for this. You, so you do have to go get this deliberately a fix-it solution. You know, their little one, you know, click on the one button and then it'll it turns something off in the registry or installs a quick patch or something. Um, so again, if you're, I know when I tweeted this, I got some responses from people saying that they had to use IE in their corporate settings. So they appreciated the heads up. They had passed this on to IT to, you know, to get the IT blessing before they did it, which is what you should do in a corporate setting. Uh, and if for some reason you're still using it at home, that is IE or on your own, then, um, it's probably good to do. It's funny too, because they have like mitigating factors that they list. It's like, okay, things things that make this not a problem. And the first okay. one is, you know, like the server versions of IE are in their, use their so-called protected mode. Well, you might as well just unplug from the internet if you try to use IE in that mode. I, you know, when I, when I- Kind of for browsing I, I would, manual files, isn't it? I mean, that's not, yeah. It's incredible how restrictive it is. I can't figure out what it's useful for. And obviously you are protected <laughs> when you, when you do that. Um, the fourth mitigating factor, though, the last one, they said, in a web-based attack scenario, an attacker could host a website that contains a web page that is used to exploit this vulnerability. In addition, compromised websites and websites that accept or host user-provided content or advertisements. Okay, well, what website doesn't have user-provided content or advertisements. And that's, that, 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 that was my point is that... Yeah, GeoCities is gone, so yeah. Yeah, what, yeah. What, what, what we're seeing is that the way these exploits are getting to people now is not necessarily that you go to some dark corner off the path site where you probably ought to know better. It's, you know, you're at the New York Times or, you know, the Wall Street Journal or, you know, some high or some Yahoo, you know, page that you would expect to be perfectly safe. And somehow that page has been made made uh, vulnerable to exploitation and something gets stuck on the page. So there's really, you know, it's not like if you are surfing safely, you're safe now. The problem is if you're surfing with IE, you're more than likely not safe. Yeah, one, one of the fixes for me is to, to not use IE unless I have to, uh, but some yeah, people I, have to, right? Yeah, I did note in the in the news coverage today of Google's new tracking alternative to third-party cookies, Ad ID, I think they call it. Yeah. I didn't realize that that Chrome has now is now the number one browser and has surpassed IE and Firefox and the others. Depends on who so, you ask, but in lots of those surveys, they have. That's true. I I just wish it were smaller. I mean, lighter weight. When I I've talked yeah. to Leo about this. When I launch Firefox, I can, I get a bump in memory. When I launch Chrome, I like lose a quarter of my machine. It just well, goes, it, used wow. to, it used to be the opposite. The reason I switched to Chrome years ago was because Firefox yep. was so big uh, yep. back then. So I guess when you become popular, you start to get 
a, become a memory hog. But the, you know, the thing about Firefox and Chrome, I use no script and not script in them, which would help prevent this sort of thing from happening. But I, is there a no script equivalent for IE where you could say like, turn off all the scripts on these websites so that third party stuff doesn't execute? You can, you can absolutely disable scripting globally, but I've mm-hmm. never seen an add-on that allowed you to do it dynamically. It may be that the, that the add-on interface doesn't provide the hooks necessary in order to do that. Because, boy, I mean, that would be, that'd be a great solution. But the only yeah. thing I know of is that, like, you know, disable JavaScript completely. And then, right. unfortunately, too much of the web is broken. Because the the brilliance of NoScript is I can say, oh, yeah, I'm on the New York Times. Let the New York Times scripts work so that the site works well. But don't let any of that other stuff from outside run because I don't know what that is. Yeah, and in fact, uh, in whatever they're on now, I think it's 23 or 22 or 23 of Firefox, uh, we were commenting a couple weeks ago that they had somewhat controversially removed the setting from the UI to allow users to disable JavaScript. And... When you updated, because because it might cause so much trouble, they silently re-enabled it as they were removing the checkbox from the UI, and 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 so Leo and I discussed it, and and I was curious how they thought they could get away with this, so I pursued the the dialogue, you know, like down in the forums where this was argued, and their position was, it's you know, scripting is so necessary now that only experts know not to run with it or to run with it conditionally. And anybody who wants conditional scripting needs to use no script. So, so they're sort of like, they were like taking themselves out of this all or nothing mode, very much the way IE has actually. Um, yeah. but, but, at least, but at least Firefox has no script and Google has not script that, that you know, gives you per site control back which is useful. Now, this next story we uh, talked about on, on TNT, and we had a lot of differing opinions about... Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, yeah. I had the TV on, maybe I think it might have been Monday morning, and and I was thinking I was watching Morning Joe on MSNBC, just sort of blabbling on in the background. But this, you know, so like it just yanked my attention when I when, you know, Joe was holding up the... Uh, the L.A. Times with with a story because I thought, whoa, we maybe this is a little going overboard. So the L.A. Times covered this. the The headline was Glendale School District to monitor students' social media posts. Kelly Corrigan, reporter for the L.A. Times, wrote, Glendale school officials have hired a Hermosa Beach company to monitor and analyze public social media posts saying the service will help them step in when students are in danger of harming themselves or others. After collecting information from students' posts on social media platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter, GeoListening, which is the name of this Hermosa Beach company, will provide Glendale school officials with a daily report uh, that categorizes posts <laughs> by their frequency and how they relate to cyberbullying, harm, hate, despair, substance abuse, vandalism, and truancy. Glendale Unified, which piloted the service at Hoover, Glendale, and Crescita Valley High Schools last year, pays the company $40,500 
to monitor posts made by about 13,000 middle school and high school students at eight Glendale schools. According to a district-wide report, geolistening gives school officials, quote, critical information as early as possible, um, allowing school employees to disrupt negative pathways and make any intervention more effective. Wrong thinking? Is that, yeah. Glendale Unified Superintendent Sheehan said the service gives the district another opportunity to, quote, go above and beyond, unquote, (laughs) when dealing with students' safety. Quote, people are always looking to see what we're doing to ensure that their kids are safe. This just gives us another opportunity to ensure the kids are safe at all times, whether they're at school or not. I, I, I add that, uh, he said. Uh, uh, Yalda Holes, H-U-L-S, a researcher at the Children's Digital Media Center at UCLA and a parent of two, said students should be made aware that their posts are being monitored. Quote, as a parent, I find it very big brother-ish. Yules added um, that standards or that students could lose trust in adults once they could lose trust in adults once they find out their posts are being tracked. However, she also admires schools' efforts in trying to attack the problem of cyberbullying. This could be one piece in a school's toolkit to combat that problem, and it should be a very small piece, she said. School board member Christine Walter said that as Glendale educators have become increasingly aware of how much bullying occurs online, officials have become more, quote, proactive to find ways to protect our students from going from ongoing harm, she said. Similar to other safety measures we employ at our schools, we want to identify when our students are engaged in harmful behavior. Right. That's why the schools are always putting microphones up and recording all the conversations in the halls. And they're, you know, following students home to see where they go in public. Uh, Those are sort of the analogs I came up with when I when I heard the story, because it is important to realize that they're not spying on the students by, like, finding their emails or anything. They're looking at public posts. Their Facebook posts are private. Then they're not going to see them. But the Twitter posts are always public. So there isn't the invasion of privacy that you might think of. But it, it is – there are other things that students do publicly that schools don't try to monitor. And I – this – you know, I – thinking in terms of execution, I wonder if, if there is then – is there a form that students fill out of – the account names, like what's your Twitter handle? What's your YouTube account? What's your Instagram account? Oh, what's that's your interesting, Facebook? yeah. Because, How do they find out who the students are, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, so, so and, and, and you know, I mean, it's, it, I completely agree that this ought to be done with, with students' awareness that their school is listening. On the other hand, you know, the way social, you know, actual social media Works. I'm sure this thing, you know, has been known from the second it was deployed that, you know, that your school is monitoring what you're doing. So my sense is all this does is push that kind of stuff further underground. I mean, if somebody wants to to communicate that way, I don't know. In a way, I could almost see it as a positive in that it teaches kids, hey, everything you do on the Internet's public, right? Yes. If you don't want people to know about it, be careful. Yep, exactly. It's like, hey, get used to, you know, the new connected world, kitties. 
because, you know, everyone is watching what you post. And there has been a lot of dialogue about, you know, the consequences of, you know, oversharing on Facebook, uh, you know, the, the fact that now, um, you know, headhunters and employment agencies and employers are are very much doing a deep dig into what would-be employees have posted publicly in order to get a better sense. You know, the, the reading is you can you can better gauge who somebody is from that than sitting across from them at a table and asking them a series of canned questions for which they're going to look like, you know, an angel. It's, it, you know, it, it, it is a really interesting debate because of the fact that they're public posts, right? And everyone's reacting as if they're they're spying on the kids' private interactions. Yeah, you're right. And they're not. They're, you know, and I'm not saying that I think that it's a good idea either. I, I think it does go over the line. It's a little bit overreaching. It's a little bit of a nanny state type of thing if, if some people like to categorize it that way because you can't protect kids from every kind of harm. Uh, right. But at the same time, the, the, these children are doing these things in public. Anybody can see this stuff. And I guess you could also argue that this is this is a, the proper role, maybe parents, but parents aren't doing this. So the school sort of being a little bit of a nanny state mode is, you know, stepping in to take responsibility. And, you know, it's interesting that there is a big service that, you know, is making $40,000 a year, uh, no doubt automating this in some way and doing like, you know, keyword searches. I mean, certainly there aren't any, there's no one who's reading 13,000 students, individual, you know, every posting everywhere. So, you know, so this is like, you know, a small version of what the NSA is doing on a, on a local scale. I kind of wish Oracle was a little more of a nanny state, (laughs) to be honest. This is kind of creepy. Um, We've talked about the fact that Oracle, that Java 6 is no longer being updated and, and, and what the problem that represents. But exploring the logical consequences of that a little bit further is extra chilling. Uh, Dan Gooden, writing for Ars Technica, reported on some, some studies. I think it was Trend Micro that sort of brought this to his, te- to his attention. He wrote... The security of Oracle's Java software framework installed on some 3 billion devices, which, of course, it brags every time you update it. We used to see that all the time when we were updating it frequently, uh, is taking a turn for the worse thanks to an uptick in attacks targeting vulnerabilities that will never be patched. And that's the key. So there, we're seeing a, an uptick in attacks on vulnerabilities that will never be patched Um, and increasingly sophisticated exploits. The most visible sign of deterioration is in-the-wild attacks exploiting unpatched vulnerabilities in Java version 6, Um, said Christopher Budd, threat communications manager, oh yeah, at antivirus provider Trend Micro. The version which Oracle stopped supporting in February, that is the the whole line of version 6, is still used by about half of the Java user base. Malware developers have responded by reverse engine, and here's the key, sort of like, you know, extensions of of what you might expect actually happening. Malware developers have responded by reverse engineering security patches issued for Java 7 and using the insights to craft exploits for the older version. 
because Java 6 is no longer supported, those same flaws will never be fixed. So Bud adds, this is a large pool of vulnerable users who will never be protected with security fixes, so they're viable targets for attack. Anyway, so... Yeah, I mean, just don't just, use Java. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't it. use it unless you have to. And, and some people have you, to. That's the problem. And, yeah, and if, and if you do... See, now, the, the problem is that many corporations have old software that won't run on Java 7. So their employees and their systems are stuck with, with Java 6. They look at the, at the burden of updating the software to run on 7, and it's like, oh, we have other things to do. It's, it works. Let's leave it alone. And the problem is it's just it's waiting to be exploited. So hopefully those are non-browser hosted instances. Or, I mean, if a company wanted to be secure, they could install Java that they have to use on IE, but don't let IE talk to the internet. Just use Java as an as an application runtime locally and if hosted in the browser if it has to be. But then on your browser that you use for the internet, Chrome or or Firefox, for example, there you want to use Java 7 or no Java at all. Probably no Java at all. I can't really think of any mm-hmm. any contemporary site that requires that you have Java itself installed. Um, no, it's usually an application. Ha- yeah. I guess I've heard, whenever I say this, I get tweets from people in the Scandinavian countries saying, oh, my bank, you know, requires that I use Java. But then I'm, really? also, I'm also seeing that they're rapidly moving away from that. They're probably, unfortunately, going to JavaScript, but it's better than Java. It's yeah, a, so you're so. saying is browse globally execute java locally yeah well be, yes because the, the 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 great benefit of java was its platform neutrality you could run java a, a, a corporation could write some proprietary system maybe it's you know for access to their back end servers or who knows what some big glue that pulls things together and it would run on Macs and it would run on PCs because Java was the the virtual machine, the so-called JVM. You'd install that on whatever computer you wanted. And then that one application, it, it was write once, run everywhere. So that was the, the, the that was the reason that Java had so much uptake, you know, sort of early on. But that's not a browser-based approach. The my in my opinion, the whole notion of putting making Java running in a browser was that you know in retrospect which obviously is is, is hindsight and easy to do it was sure. a disaster because it's it's caused so much grief for people so it made sense to run it on as as a local virtual machine in 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 a right once run everywhere mode never was it a good idea as a browser plugin because it's just been a catastrophe and it's kind of sad. I wish it had been. I wish it had fulfilled the right once run everywhere. But we kind of have moved past past that with HTML5 and web apps and such. Exactly. I, mean, I think we're we're really seeing. Well, in fact, for example, we're even seeing now with the new uh, communication stuff. We're beginning to see you know like real time audio and video le- leaving individual chat apps and moving into the browser. I think the browser yeah. as a you know as a uh, a, a, as a dynamic container is clearly it's getting powerful enough to to write and to run these kinds of things. 
Okay, it's time. It's NSA time. We need a we need a kind of a regular bumper or radio stinger yeah. for this, huh? Yeah. Um, we can't get away from these things, and there are there are a couple interesting uh, uh, notes from our users that that we'll share here in the second half of of today's podcast. Good. But this one sort of caught my eye because the 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 person. Uh, who is quoted, John Gilmore, is a famous co-founder of the EFF, uh, very involved in, in what's happening on the Internet. And and this was an InfoSecurity magazine. The The title was of, of this piece was, Did the NSA Subvert the Security of IPv6? Um, and I'm just going to share this little piece. It's pretty short in its entirety. That's uh, They wrote... Yeah. Following the Snowden leaks revealing Bull Run, which we talked about last week, you know, this the whole notion of, you know, the, the extent and the level and the budget of the NSA's overt, now it's overt, uh, no longer covert, uh, intent to essentially keep the Internet from going dark for them. Um there is an emerging emerging consensus that users can no longer automatically trust security. Cryptographer and EFF board member Bruce Schneier, who's been a, a recent guest of, of Leo's, and of course we, we speak of Bruce all the time, has given advice on how, how to be as secure as possible. Trust the math, he says. Encryption is your friend. Use it well and do your best to ensure that nothing can compromise it. That's how you can remain secure, even in the face of the NSA, unquote, from Bruce. I like that. Trust the math. Trust clip. the math. I like, like that as a slogan. Yeah. Yes, because he's absolutely right. That and, and, and I mean, th- as far as anyone knows, that is that is still the case. The, the 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 actual math, the actual technology of cryptography is sound. Unfortunately, the actual delivery of security uses cryptography as only one component. And nothing else except the math is sound. And so the NSA, you know, they, they can bribe people. They, sure. they can use national security letters. So they, they, they can use, a, a, you know, ar- arguably abuse of authority and, all, you know, basically everything but the actual crypto, the crypto we can depend upon. So this story continues. He confirms the growing consensus that Bullrun's greatest success is in subverting the implementations of encryption rather than the ability to crack the encryption algorithms themselves. The general belief is that the NSA has persuaded, forced, or possibly even tricked individual companies into building weaknesses or backdoors into their products that can be exploited later. You know, and I've, I've gone on the record to say, okay, I need evidence. It's like, you know, yes, we need to be skeptical because we've always had to be skeptical. And I think what has happened in the wake of, of these revelations is that, you know, that the tinfoil factor has gone up by an order of magnitude, but it was always there. So yeah, well, so, in a way, the NSA is just a very large and powerful group of hackers, and, and right. so you need—I mean, they're they're big, right? And there's right. there's political implications, but as far as like what they can do, they can do all the same things anybody else can. 
Yeah, now, you know, and and we talked, for example, about BitLocker, Microsoft's proprietary hard drive encryption. I'm not going to use it. I'm going to use TrueCrypt because mm -hmm. I know the TrueCrypt came from an international group of developers where the security of the product was their goal. I don't know anything about Microsoft's, you know, goals for BitLocker, nor any influence. I have no reason to believe there was any. I don't. I actually, you know, again, I would need proof rather than 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 just this sort of like you know conjecture and suspicion. But still, given a choice, hey, we have a choice. TrueCrypt is free. Why not use that one? Anyway, continuing the bottom line, however is that the fabric of the Internet can no longer be trusted. Meanwhile, John Gilmore, co-founder of EFF and a prominent, and a, sorry, a proponent of free open source software, has raised a tricky question. Has NSA involvement in IPv6 and IPsec, the IP security layer, effectively downgraded its security. IPsec is the technology that would make IP communications secure. So just let, let's stop again here for a second to, to, to remind people. The way we get security over TCP connections now is we establish a point-to-point a -point connection and then we run a protocol, SSL, TLS, on top of that lower-level physical connection or point-to-point -point connection. So, so HTTPS, for example, is is the you know brings SSL to the HTTP connection as an add-on, you know, as as an as a layer on top of the underlying protocol. One of the best things, about, in my opinion, about IPv6, which like almost <laughs> makes it worthwhile, <laughs> was that IPsec, which again has been an existing technology. IPsec is, uh, has been around for a long time. You can get IPsec routers. You can set up tunnels and so forth. So that's been all, all in place. But the, but the proposal has been that it would be integrated into IPv6 from the beginning, which so so that was one of the cool advances was that IPv6 would have security as part of you know like bound into the protocol. IPv4 that we're using now doesn't. You need to add that layer. IPv6 would. So so John says, Gilmore notes that he had been involved in trying to make IPsec, quote, so usable that it would be used by default throughout the Internet. But, quote, NSA employees participated throughout the process and occupied leadership roles in the committees and among the editors of the documents. The result was, quote, so complex that every real cryptographer who tried to analyze it threw their hands up and said, we can't even begin to evaluate its security unless you simplify it radically. Hmm, that's worrying. Which, which never happened. Mm -hmm. So 
I mean, so, so I mean, and so, so this, for everything we know, this reads true because if you wanted to kill something, you just keep adding crap to it until it is, it is so huge and lumbering and burdensome that, that first of all, nobody wants to code it because it's just a nightmare to like support it all. And with that complexity, as we know, complexity is the enemy of security. So you could imagine, and again, pure speculation, but but even if they, even if hidden in that complexity wasn't some way around it, the point was that real cryptographers understood that if they couldn't understand it, they couldn't ever vouch for its security. Right. So, so, so you, even if it was secure, you just make it impossible to implement and nobody will. So Gil, so, so continuing Gilmore says, uh, or the article says Gilmore doesn't explicitly say that the NSA sabotaged IPsec, but the fact remains that in December, 2011, IPsec in IPv6 was downgraded from must include to should include. He does, however, make very clear his belief in NSA involvement in other security standards. Discussing cell phone encryption, he says, quote, NSA employees explicitly lied to standards committees, leading to encryption designed by a clueless Motorola employee. Poor employee. <laughs> to, this, to this day, he adds, no mobile telephone standards committee has considered or adopted an end-to-end, phone-to-phone privacy protocol. This is because the big companies involved, the huge telcos, are all in bed with NSA to make damn sure, the article says, that working end-to-end encryption never becomes the default on mobile phones. And this makes perfect sense when you think of all those stories we've heard over the years of somebody tapping in on cell phone conversations, showing how easy it is to, to listen in on cell phone conversations, and everyone reacting going, why don't they do something about this? Why don't they fix it? And the, big, the best cover story at all was that we're like, ah, the telcos, they just don't care. They're greedy and they're incompetent. And we, and, and you know, probably several people out there jumped to the conclusion that it was some kind of cooperation with the government. But it, that seems one hundred percent the most likely explanation now. Yeah, unfortunately, and again, that demonstrates this has been going on for quite a while. I mean, the, yeah. you know, and, and again, the uh, the NSA's charter is to know what's going on to the greatest degree possible. So. It is the case that our lives have moved online. What we do is moving over wires. And so, um, you know, I used to buy things, you know, driving around in my car. Now now I go to Amazon oh, yeah. to do it. And so, you know, if somebody, you know, I mean, so Amazon has all my records. Amazon knows more about me than any other single entity on the planet, you know, based on what I buy. Um, so, I mean, the, the world has changed as as we've gone online. And for I think what's interesting is that it probably got really good for a while for the NSA 
But I have said on the podcast, talking talking to Leo about the Snowden the Snowden effect, that it's going to get really bad in the future. I mean, this this will end up having been the worst thing that has ever happened to our intelligence collecting ability because, as Bruce says, trust the math. The math is good. And so the point is that the math will stay good, but people who care about offering more security have the ability to do so in all the ways other than the math. And and that's there. So, which is a long-winded way of saying we're going to fix a lot of this. Yeah, uh, and it's going to be it's going to be because we now know somebody is actually listening, and we'd rather not be listened to. It's it's the the implications of this are not going to be known in full any more than the Pentagon Papers coming out at the time. Did we know in full what what that was going to do uh, yep. to? to how we conduct business and how we think of privacy and how we think of the government. Uh, it's, it's still being worked out right now, but for sure uh, it's, it's going to keep coming. It does seem yeah. like there, there's more leaks to come too. Um, I don't know if we're at the end of them yet or not. Yeah. Let's cheer up. Let's talk about orphan black. Well, I just wanted to say, I've, I've mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. A, a good friend of mine sent me, uh, a review from Paul Krugman, of all people, uh, a, a well-known columnist for the New York Times, who raved about it. I've still not seen it. In fact, oh, here it is. Uh, thanks to Amazon. There, huh? <laughs> there, wow, there's that my, was quick. There's my Orphan Black uh, uh, DVD. I'm still catching up on Mad Men, having, having figured, okay, ah, everyone's rave, okay. raving about it. I need to find out what's going on uh, after catching up with... Uh, um, breaking Bad. So I'll get to Orphan Black, but I'm getting a ton of feedback from people making me very glad that even sight unseen, I shared this with our listeners. Will Pierce, uh, and I saw this in, in the mailbag I was going through today for today's Q&A, Will Pierce in Raleigh, North Carolina had the subject line Orphan Black, so that just kind of caught my eye. He just he said very very quickly, two lines, addicting and binging, or sorry, he said addicted and binging. Thanks a lot, Steve. I really needed another time sink. So, you know, which is a obviously a backhanded <laughs> yeah. compliment. Then also Dale Francisco in Fresno, California, subject was orphan black nightmares. He said, <laughs> Steve, based on your critique, which I actually wasn't that, it was or not even a review, just, you know, awareness in episode 420. I decided to see what about Orphan Black could be so special. Dang it. I usually watch the History Channel, Discovery, Military Channel, and PBS. Arg. Now <laughs> I will have to burn up more hours of my day with Orphan Black. I fully expect to spend nearly all day tomorrow watching slash catching up with Orphan Black. Thankfully, I just retired. I have a few more hours each day available to devote to my personal interests. So again, for what it's worth, I've still not seen it, but the people who are, you know, our fellow listeners who have, have been raving about it. I haven't seen a single negative comment. So, Oh yay. yeah, no, I, I can back them up. I watched the entire season on BBC America uh, oh, cool. and it was, it was fascinating. And they, they're uh, airing it on the BBC in the UK now, because it was actually made over here. 
Oh, so I know that they're rerunning first season. Are they, re- are they on BBC America? They're rerunning first season in in ah. the UK. They're getting it for the first time. Ooh, finally, which means people who have <clears throat> ways are, can no no doubt get it too. Oh, of course, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and I'm I'm excited about the second season and and what they're going to do there. We're gonna we're gonna meet more clones. I don't want to say too much. Ooh, no, you haven't me. watched it yet, but yeah, it, it's good. Cool. So uh, a little spin right update, and then we'll get into our Q&A. Yesterday, I finished the work on that was like the whole first phase of development. Uh, the, the, the major feature that spin right 6.1 will offer is freedom from the BIOS. The BIOS has been, has been a, an increasing problem for spin right. Unfortunately, that's, that's great. Yeah, it, it it, the BIOS hasn't been able to keep up with the size of drives. And so sometimes people report, you know, divide by zero errors when they give it, when a particular motherboard and a particular drive don't like each other, Spinrite comes along and says, oh, let's go. And the BIOS, you know, collapses. Um, so what we have now is a rock solid implementation, our own uh direct memory access, bus mastering, native level drivers for every system that the hundred people in the news group, I think it was 175 drives I I saw. Uh, somebody pulled the information Man. together and posted a table. It's really, a, it's really a fabulous development environment to work with these guys. And it's working perfectly. Um, it's really interesting too, because what I ended up creating was a a benchmark which is perfect. Um, we have Spinrite now has, or I should say, and it's funny too because I, I have to be careful because people have been writing to GRC saying, "Hey, where's the beta that Steve's talking about?" We're not. I don't have a Spinrite beta. We actually we have something called Spin Test, which is sort of the core, the the, the new core communications structure, which I will then merge into Spinrite. Once that's finished, so so it's a freestanding application that anyone who was interested with could could play with. That's freely downloadable. Um, what we're seeing is, a, oh, I'm I'm sorry. What I was going to say was that I ended up producing a benchmark just because that was a nice way to demonstrate what my goal was 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 performance. So Spinrite has an, an integrated extended memory manager that we created from scratch. Uh, I, I talked about how in real mode, I'm able to tweak with the Intel architecture to get access to four gigabytes of memory. We only really need 32 megs. 32 megabytes is the maximum size that a disk can transfer at once. That's that's 16 bits worth of sector count, which is 65536, which is 32 megabytes of data. So what we're seeing is we're able to demonstrate data transfer rates that match the specs from the companies making the drives. Obviously, they're going to quote the highest possible data rate their drive can achieve. This benchmark gets the same number. And for example, on the faster drives that we're seeing, we're getting like we're seeing 157 megabytes. I think it's 57. I didn't go back and check. It's either 57 or 75. 157, something like that, megabytes per second, which equates to, not in, in terms of like a, a spin right level to read 
and and recover when necessary scan 93 minutes per terabyte so Man. we've re- we've really achieved that that what i was hoping for was the the ability to to um to test large drives in a short amount of time 93 make minutes per terabyte means you know a little over an hour and a half per terabyte so you can do one two and three terabyte drives just in a matter of a couple hours so it's going to be so at this point um the technology is in place for the older style standard the ata ide standard there's a newer type of controller so-called ahci the advanced uh, host controller interface that i'm going to do next but first, I'm going to take a break, as I've mentioned before, to document the idea that I had for website authentication. I think I have a way of obsoleting usernames and passwords completely. Uh, I've been thinking about it in the background for a couple of weeks since this hit me on a Thursday morning during breakfast. Uh, I can't find a problem with it. So I'm going to so I've wrapped up SpinRight work yesterday. I'm going to get this concept for authentication documented then we'll i'll talk about it here on the podcast and then i'm going to get back to spin right that's impressive stuff steve that being able to operate outside of the bios and and uh i i i for one am one of the many who hope you fix that username password thing too that would be amazing yeah it's funny because what i've i've seen people talk about you know like the additional complexity of one-time passwords and how the problem with its adoption is that it hasn't it hasn't removed anything. It's added more complexity in return for the assumption of more security. And, but the problem is, so, so there, there's a problem because you're just, you know, you're adding more stuff. And yes, okay, maybe it makes you more secure. I mean, you know, obviously I've been a fan of one-time passwords. If that's all you can do, it makes you more secure. I think I have a solution which completely replaces the whole username password model it can run side by side, but and so a website could offer traditional authentication or new style, and the motivation for new style would be it's much easier to use. It's, for example, safe in a public setting. You could safely log on in a library where there, which, where a system might be crawling with malware, um, and it, the reason it would be, a, it, I think. Uh, one of the many reasons it might get adopted is the website then doesn't have the problem of user credentials escaping from them either. It's safe against that as well. So anyway, I, I don't mean to keep teasing people. With, I mean, I'm, I've been teasing myself for weeks because I haven't let myself sit down and uh-huh. and really focus on it until I finished this phase of SpinRight, which as of yesterday is done. It sounds great. And people in the chat room are, are like, ask him this, ask him that. Or like, <laughs> let's let's go, let's let him document it. Get get the ideas down. Then we could we could start pressing him for details. Yep. And I, I want it attacked. I, I absolutely need more eyes on it in order to say, what about this and what about that? So uh, yeah, we'll be sure. doing that for sure. All right, let's take a uh, quick break and thank our other sponsor for today's show, ProXPN. If you listen to this show, you know there are threats everywhere. There's all kinds of people trying to get into your data. Uh, They want to to restrict what you can see on the Internet based on your geographic location. Maybe they want to filter things. Uh, And most importantly to me, they want to steal your stuff. They want to snoop on you, especially if you're out there using an open Wi-Fi access port. That's just... 
not wise. Don't don't do that without VPN. Don't go to that airport Wi-Fi or that hotel Wi-Fi or that coffee shop Wi-Fi without using some kind of virtual private network. And I use ProXPN. It's a global solution. Works almost any internet connection. It creates a secure encrypted tunnel, 512-bit encryption tunnel through which all your online data passes back and forth. Any online application can work with ProXPN. I use it to stream video. You can use your web browser, your email, your file sharing, your instant messaging programs. It keeps everything you do online hidden from prying eyes. It bypasses internet filtering. They can't see who you are. Bypasses those geographical restrictions. And it works on Windows. It works on Mac. And because it's open VPN or PPTP, you can pretty much configure it on anything you want. I, I configured it for my phone. I configured it for Linux. There's a new Pro XPN app for Android in the Google Play Store that supports open VPN. Makes it easy to use. World-class customer support Steve, even you gave it a great review. That That's the thing that, that knocked me over the line. I was like, Steve likes it. I like it too. Go to ProXPN.com slash twit for more information and to sign up. ProXPN premium accounts are normally $9.95 a month or $74.95 for an entire year. We've got a special offer. Use the code that's up there on your screen, SN20, to receive 20% off for the lifetime of your account. That's less than five bucks a month on the yearly plan. And if you're not satisfied, you can cancel within seven days for a full refund. Go to proxpn.com slash twit and use that offer code SN20. We thank ProXPN for their support of security now. Time now for a listener-driven potpourri, number <laughs> 175. I, I love doing these. These are fun, Steve. Well, we got a, a bunch of really interesting thoughts and observations and questions, so uh, I think we're going to have fun with them. Let's start off with listener Greg writing from an undisclosed location, because he's probably protecting his, his geolocation. Uh, he wonders what Bruce Schneier meant. Hi, Steve. Could you briefly explain what Bruce Schneier meant when he said that he preferred conventional discrete log-based systems over elliptic curve systems because the latter, referring to elliptic curve, have constants that the NSA influences when they can. Yeah. Um, I'm a little concerned that elliptic curve systems are going to be, are going to have their reputations needlessly damaged by by being lumped in as with like like all elliptic curve systems. The point is that where where the traditional RSA style uh, public key technology, as we've talked about often, uses the the difficulty of factoring a really large number into the two primes of which it of which it is the product. You know, so so there's it's like very easy to understand what that does. Um, a whole different class of problems where where factoring is the is the hard thing that no one knows how to do quickly the so-called discrete log problem is is the is the fact that we don't know how similarly um to to find the 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 discrete log of a large number now there are different systems that use that, that use the logarithm problem, one being elliptic curves. Um, elliptic curves are, 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 are an equation, x to the third equals x squared plus x 
times three plus B or something. I mean, so it's basically an algebraic curve, but it is, it's parametric in nature. The, the specific elliptic curve that you choose bears on the performance. So, so, and there, and cryptographers understand that there are, there are dumb ones that no one would use. And then there are lots of good ones that people can use. So, What's happened is in the, but, but inherently there are like, you know, curve families. You're able to plug these variables in and, and choose an elliptic curve. So for interoperability of systems, for systems to, you know, in the same way that we have like clients and servers that need to be able to have an agreed upon protocol for establishing a handshake, You'd like to agree on specific elliptic curve parameters so that you could, you could then write protocols that use those curves. So here's where Bruce's concern and the NSA influence comes in. We, we talked about this a little bit last week with regard to a, a wacky random number generator um, or, uh, that the NSA had a hand apparently in influencing. Specific elliptic curves have been standardized by the NIST and the parameters are known. The problem is we don't know where the parameters came from in many cases. Hmm. And it's been shown that it's theoretically possible to choose parameters that effectively give a specific curve a backdoor. So, so, so essentially... If you, if you know where the parameters come from, if you know who created them and why they created them, then an elliptic curve is not only as good as RSA, and this is the point, it's arguably much better. The, the, the reason people are looking at this and, in fact, considering elliptic curves and discrete log problems as the generation beyond RSA is that the as from everything that we know the discrete log problem is much more difficult to solve for a given size of problem for a given bit length than factoring so for example you know we know how to you know say that you had a a number that was uh small like it was no larger than than 50 bits well we know how to factor 50-bit numbers. I mean, that's easy to do. But doing a discrete log of 50 bits, even that is much harder than factoring. So the point is that, that equal difficulty, discrete logs versus factoring, the, the discrete log problem is much harder at a given bit length. Consequently... You can use much smaller keys in elliptic curve discrete log systems than in the, the RSA factoring problem system. And much smaller keys means much faster algorithms. So, so in terms of difficulty, elliptic curve systems appear to have a much stronger future because they are vastly faster today for the same level of security 
and it looks like they will scale very well in the future as we decide we need more security by creating greater bit lengths. So there's nothing wrong with them at all. I'm a fan of elliptic curve systems. You just have to understand why you're using the curve you're using. And I agree, unfortunately, that all the standard curves are, I think, poison at this point. The, the, you know, the NIST standard where the, like, these are the curves we're all going to use. It's like, uh, no, thank you. So in other words, trust the math, but not the mathematician. <laughs> well, it's again, it's like, unfortunately, this particular system, you know, a, a prime factorization is not parametric. There's no parameters to to be used at all in factoring a number. There's a number, factor it. That's all you can do. Elliptic curves, by their nature, are a family of curves. There's, a, there's an, in, an infinite number of them. And so somebody chose the particular parameters for a specific curve that you could then agree to use for your system. The question is, who chose those and why? Yeah, what family? Whose family? Yes. <laughs> and it's everything we've been saying, which is there's nothing wrong with the math of elliptic curves, but there's these endpoints of like, here, use this set, use this family. Who's saying yeah. that? You know, We'd like that, you to standardize right? on this. It's like, yeah, uh, exactly. Maybe. Uh, Richard Warner in Bedford, UK, offers some sci-fi feedback. Steve, I just wanted to thank you for introducing me to the Antares trilogy by Michael McCollum. It has been some time since I have read a complete trilogy back-to-back and couldn't put it down. For me, it has just the right balance between the sci-fi element and the main narrative of the lives of the characters, something that I struggle with sometimes with Peter Hamilton books. I certainly won't be able to wait many squared heartbeats before I read another of his books, Richard. So... I just wanted to, you know, we've talked about Michael McCollum often, uh, and I wanted to say to Richard, well, if you like the Antares trilogy, don't forget the Gibraltar uh, trilogy. There's another trilogy, Gibraltar Earth, Gibraltar Sun, Gibraltar Stars. Same author, and I recommend it similarly without reservation. And to any of our listeners who have heard about me talk about, have heard me talk about this in the past, but haven't made the move if, you know, if your life gives you some time to uh, to read, either the Antares trilogy or the Gibraltar trilogy by Michael McCollum are fabulous. That's M C C O L L U M. And and when mentioning Peter Hamilton, I'm reading the Great North Road, which is his latest one uh, cool, right I'm now. Not yet and started. Definitely a balance of characters and sci-fi in that one going on, uh, which I, I know what Richard's talking about. Sometimes, uh, but this one I, I think has a really good balance. So that's another cool. one. Cool. How, how far your... are you? Bow. <laughs> it feels like I should be at the end, but I think I'm about a quarter of the way through. Yeah, <laughs> they're long. They are. Daniel in Oslo wonders whether we're living in a post-encryption world already. He says, I guess I've lost faith. With the latest revelations that the NSA can crack pretty much anything on the market these days, I am even skeptical of the news today of breakthroughs in quantum encryption. Is this a new attempt at sneaking in backdoors and getting everyone to jump over to a new, even more easily circumvented standard? I seriously considered unblocking myself entirely for the first time today. Is there any hope, Steve? So th this question and the next one are pretty much on this topic. Um, I, I guess what I want to, to reiterate um, is that I, th I believe there is hope. I think that, that, as Bruce says, trust the math, 
we also, as we've seen, have to trust the, trust the system. And it's the system, not the encryption, not the math, which has, because it is a system and it's complex and it involves lots of moving pieces, we, re- we realize now it can be abused. The system can be tightened up. The system can be fixed. And, and I think what's going to happen a year from now, it, it, this, this doesn't happen fast, but there is tremendous pressure now on improving the system. And that's why I think that, that ultimately what, what happened with, with Edward Snowden is going to end up really improving security because now we know there's a reason to tighten things up and there's a reason, for example, to update protocols. Protocols are not easy to update. There's inertia, huge inertia to updating them. And so it's like, well, yeah, yeah, they seem to be fine right now. Well, no one thinks that today. So they can be updated. They can be fixed. And I really think we're going to see a, a technical response, which uh, is going to do go a long way to, to uh bringing back the faith that Daniel has lost. Uh, it, it's it's worth, it's going to take a while, but I believe it's going to happen. Well, and things, when you take the historical perspective, are better now than they have been. And I'm, I'm saying the historical perspective. I'm not talking about last year or the year before, even 10 years ago. Uh, but people actually have the ability to buy a computer and use encryption uh, and not just slave away, you know, in a field somewhere for a subsistence agriculture, at least in large parts of the world they do. Uh, and, so and, this- look at the, and, and look at the appreciation that really has, it took a long time, but people now understand not to use password as their password. Right. I mean, <laughs> even that, on no, a smaller scale, that's a big boy. advance. You're right. Yeah. It was inertia. It took a long time, but, People get it now. So, you know, this, this kind of change isn't instantaneous. You know, I would say we're, we're at the low ebb at this instant because there hasn't been time to react yet technically. Yet at the same time, we, we've been hit by the political, the social side. The technology is going to come. Yeah, we actually have a concept of privacy that has not always existed. In fact, that's a very new thing in human history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have to work it out. And this is, this is it being worked out. This is the sausage being made. At least that's my opinion. Yeah. Uh, let's, we've got a similar one here. Linwood Wright in Tampa, Florida, wonders whether privacy exists at all. Steve, I've been an IT professional for 17 years, longtime listener and longtime user of SpinRight. I can't count how many times it's recovered data, genius product. I've been following all of our government domestic spying news, and I can't think of any possible way to maintain privacy short of abandoning all electronics and moving to a northern Canadian deserted mountaintop. Like most Americans, I have nothing to hide, but firmly believe in privacy. Without it, freedom is lost. I've been self-censoring my communications more and more every day, trying to think if what I'm writing will trigger anything at the various agencies monitoring my every thought. This is not freedom. For instance, trigger and freedom in the same paragraph is probably not a smart thing to do. Just a list of things in my head that are insecure. Please tell me I'm wrong. 
phone calls, intercepted and access to stored metadata, emails, intercepted and access to stored metadata, metadata, texts, intercepted and access to stored metadata. He goes on HTTP, HTTPS, broken, and they have a key database. VPNs, broken, they have a key database to use. Cloud, captured in transit, and they likely have access to the data center. Computers, files, video, audio, Stuxnet. Smartphones, everything in and out is intercepted and access to stored metadata. Standalone GPS units might be safe. A eh? sigh. <laughs> yeah, I, I was moved to put both of these in mostly because there's so much of the incoming email reads like this. Yeah. I mean, and I recognize that the listeners of this podcast, the people who care about security and privacy, who don't just say, oh, whatever, or, or, and don't just say, oh, well, it's always been like this. I mean, this is what our, the listeners to this podcast are thinking about. Um, certainly, we provide, we have been providing tools for years to, to begin to work against this. You know, I coined the acronym TNO for Trust No One. And in fact, we were talking about Google's ridiculous encryption of, of their Google Drive, which they can decrypt. I, we also recently curbed ZVE, zero value encryption, yeah. um, as, as an acronym. So, so again, I'm, you know, this is still what people want to talk about. We'll talk about it. Uh, soon, we'll be talking about the improvements, essentially coming back from where we are using new technological solutions to begin to restore privacy. Um, I don't think what will ever change, though, is that you know everything he itemized there is a consequence of the connectivity that we have. It is a huge productivity boost. You know, anything I want to know, I can Google and know. That I mean, that's just that's amazing. But with it comes. Can, you know, with, with it comes some compromise to the fact that somebody monitoring what I'm doing is able to see what I'm interested in. And then there certainly is a chilling factor. I've often talked to Leo about how, you know, I'm self-censoring a little bit. There are, you know, like in Google searches, I think, oh, you know, whose attention is going to come to? Just the other day, I was curious about, um, what was it? Uh the gas that was used in Syria it wasn't ricin, it was sarin. And so I remembered, though, that Wikipedia was going to be switching over to HTTPS. So I, rather than just Googling sarin, and which would obviously <laughs> may, maybe be seen, I established a, a secure connection to Wikipedia first, and then I searched for sarin in Wikipedia, that is with the secure connection, you know, trusting Wikipedia more than I trust Google to keep my interest safe. I mean, I have no interest other than just, I was curious what it was that, that, that you know, what was that, that, that sarin gas did. Unfortunately, I found out. Um, but you know, that's the consequence of this, this sense of being watched at all the time. And on this next question by Robert Sutton is just, it were, or actually statement, he talks about privacy in a way I think it's really interesting. Yeah, he's got a bit about the philosophy of privacy. He's in uh, Brigantine, New Jersey. I can tell that Steve is interested in the philosophy behind the importance of privacy, so I figured I would share a bit of the philosophical basis I use to explain why privacy is necessary. The 20th century existential philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre asserted that privacy was necessary to make the most out of our lives. This is apparent in his play No Exit. In this play, a group of people have their eyelids removed and are trapped in a room together. It turns out this room is hell. This is where the 
quote, hell is other people comes from, he, he says. Their eyelids being removed is so that they can't even close their eyes and imagine that they are alone. In Sartre's version of existentialism, he claims that humans have two modes of being, being for itself and being for others. Imagine you're alone in the woods or going for a stroll in the park with no one else around. You look at all the trees, the park benches, and leaves on the ground and just enjoy the nice scenery. Since you're alone, you almost get the feeling that all these things are there just for you. You perceive these things as objects in your universe. This is being for itself. Then suddenly, you notice someone else in the distance walking towards you, though they don't see you yet. Seeing someone else and realizing they're about to approach you, you now perceive yourself as an object in someone else's universe. So what do you do? You suddenly become conscious of your appearance. You make sure your shirt is buttoned. You fix your hair. You straighten your posture so you look presentable and mentally prepare yourself for an interaction with another person. Then, when the person finally approaches you, you put on a smile, claim you're happy to see the person, and extend your hand for a handshake. In this mode of being, you are viewing yourself as an object in someone else's universe. You're not just behaving as your true self, but you're also behaving how you believe the other person expects you to behave. Viewing yourself as an object in someone else's universe is being for others. Sartre believes that being for itself is the mode where humans can be the highest form of themselves and make the most out of their lives. Being for others is the source of all shame, embarrassment, and guilt. People who live through the expectations of others and always behave how they believe others want them to behave is what Sartre refers to as being in bad faith. The philosophy is somewhat derived from Friedrich Nietzsche's concept of Ubermensch, which is German for Superman. An Ubermensch is someone who is the highest form of themselves with minimal influence from society. An Ubermensch is always living inside their own head, and they don't view themselves through the eyes of others. An Ubermensch also doesn't follow any rules or social norms that they don't understand and make the most of their existence before they croak. Ever since the whole NSA surveillance fiasco, I realize I'm always considering how I appear to others. Whenever I am talking with a friend, I have trouble getting the feeling of flow in which I feel like I can be my true self because I always know someone else is watching. It's like I'm always viewing myself through the eyes of a third party. Before every sentence I speak or write, I enter being for others in which I consider how I would appear to someone else listening in on the conversation. It's like I'm always behaving how the government would expect me to behave as the perfect citizen. I even find myself afraid to say inside jokes I have with my friends because I'm afraid someone listening in would take them out of context. I find myself constantly restrained from being my true self. When the whole prism thing got leaked, I could hear Sartre and Nietzsche rolling in their graves. This news made me realize that existentialism is now more relevant than ever. If we believe we are always being watched, we will lose our ability to maintain being for itself and we'll all be living through being for others in which we spend our short lives as robots behaving through other people's expectations. This is why in the opening chapter of 1984, Winston Smith sat in the corner of the room as he wrote in his journal outside of the view of the cameras. He needed to escape the view of others in a desperate attempt to retain his humanity. I know this is long, but I just thought you'd be interested. I'm a computer security grad student, and I started listening to your podcast just to stay informed in current security affairs. But now I find myself looking forward to every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Thanks for the great podcast. I thought that was interesting. An interesting you know, I was, a philosophy, I was a philosophy minor, a big fan of Sartre, and uh, loved that play, No Exit. There is an alternate take on that, uh, and, and this doesn't discount anything Rob said. Rob did a great explanation of, of one view on this. But the alternate take could be 
that what Sartre was trying to encourage you to do was to be that being for yourself, even in the view of others. And uh, I suppose you could enough. take that. Yeah, take that to the logical extent of something like this actually strengthens us because it forces us to confront that being for others and try to resist it. It's like, you know, gazing around and seeing cameras pointed at you and saying, eh, okay, so what? Yeah, exactly. And and not not feeling like, oh, I have to, you know, some, some other people are around, so I have to be, I behave differently than who I am. It's being true to yourself. I think we'd all like to choose to put ourselves in that situation rather than to be thrust into that situation. But the reason this is so applicable, I believe, is Sartre wrote a lot of this stuff based on his experience in France during the German occupation, where uh-huh. he went through exactly the worst form. I mean, we think we've got it bad. This, he had a much worse form of a surveillance state. Yeah. Just without the technology. Yeah. Shall we go to Paul Durham in Let's Port Elizabeth, South Africa, suggesting an SMTP protocol improvement? He says, hi, Steve. On security now, you have discussed privacy issues relating to email. I have an idea that I think could be applied to SMTP that could improve privacy. Currently, when a user sends an email, the email headers show who it is from, who it is going to, and the content of the email is typically visible as well. The mail content can be encrypted by applying PGP. Privacy is still leaked by the header containing the from and to details. Suppose each email domain had a PGP key pair. When the email is created by the sender, the recipient is defined in the email as normal and the email content is encrypted with the recipient's PGP key as normal. In order to protect the recipient's email address from being viewed in the metadata, the email and the recipient's details should be encrypted with the receiving domain's PGP key. This way, the email can get as far as the receiving domain's SMTP servers without the recipient being identified, and only then would the recipient become identifiable to the receiving domain in order to deliver the email to the recipient. Since the domain decrypting the recipient information is the same domain the recipient is in, there would be little, if any, risk of loss of information. In order to protect the sender's information, the email created by the sender after it has been encrypted by the recipient's PGP key and thereafter by the recipient's domain's PGP key, can be encrypted by the sender's domain's PGP key. This would protect the email sender's metadata from being intercepted until it is received by the sender's mail server for further delivery. Since the server's domain is the same as the sender's domain, there is little, if any, loss of information at this point. So, to summarize... Encrypt an email with the recipient's PGP key, then the receiving domain's PGP key, then the sender's domain's PGP key. This would seem to protect the privacy of an email from the source to the destination, with the exception of the sender's domain knowing the sender and the recipient's domain knowing the recipient. Does this make sense? And would it work as Paul envisages it? (laughs) Well, first of all, yes. And what I got, I got a kick out of this as I was reading it because essentially what Paul has done is create a mini onion router. This is essentially what the onion router does as you, when you want to send something anonymously out on the internet, you choose a series of nodes and then you, you encrypt from the farthest away one sequentially towards you, successively encrypting, creating these these so-called layers of the onion, and then you send this to the first node that's only able to decrypt the outer layer. It sends it to the next node that, that because you've 
you, the the packet is moving in the in the in the same direction that you 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 added these layers. Um, it, it's able to hop back through each node decrypting the what is then the outermost layer when it receives it. That's exactly what Paul has suggested here with SMTP. The idea would be that you first encrypt with the with the the recipient's email, then you encrypt with the recipient's domain, then you encrypt with your domain. So then you hand this that's got three layers of of encryption wrapping to your domain that it's able to decrypt it to find out where it goes. It then sends it to where it's going, the the recipient's domain. That domain can decrypt that layer. Now it knows who it's bound for. It then transfers it to that person, and then that person takes the last layer, the innermost layer, off by decrypting that. So essentially it's onion routing. And we know that the concept is strong and viable, and this essentially applies that to, to email. Now, of course, going from the theory, which is sound, to practice is a problem because we all have a protocol which doesn't use much encryption right now. I think that probably email is as ripe when I was talking about the 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 pressure that the notion of surveillance puts on the adoption of protocols. Email is probably among the most ripe for this kind of upgrade, you know, switching in general to more security. Initially be optional, servers will then will be replaced that understand some sort of email privacy and then we'll begin to get it over time. Because right now it's just, you know, almost all of email is completely unencrypted in the clear. Do you think email's worth saving? Or will That's we just move on to something entirely different? It's a good question. Um, yeah. I love you know, the store and forward nature of it. I love that it's asynchronous. We can, you know, do things in the middle of the night. We can answer things when we choose to, you know, like switching everything to real time would <laughs> make us all neurotic, I think. Yeah, yeah I suppose that's true. Uh, speaking of neurotic, when I was growing up, we all talked about neurotic people going to the mental hospital in Alton, Illinois, but that has nothing to do with Steve who I imagine is perfectly sane and from Alton, Illinois. A bunch of my family is over there too, Steve. Don't worry about it. Uh, on this topic of Steve's coffee recipe, Steve, thanks for the great security show listener for years. I've heard you talk about this amazing coffee recipe you have. Will you please open source the coffee recipe so the rest of us can get addicted as well? I'm with Steve. What is this coffee recipe? And go ahead and, and do number eight at the same time. Okay, yeah, John Hugan also asked about your magical coffee. He says, when you're done working on the far more important webpage that describes the solution to user and web authentication, assuming this isn't something you want to keep as your secret recipe, I'm wondering if you could post your guide to This Is Coffee Coffee, including raw materials, hardware, and methods. I have to say I'm very intrigued by your description because I tend to drink coffee only in more elaborate drinks because I've always found black coffee too bitter, but I also hate the number of calories those typical types of drinks have so if there is in fact a way to get great tasting black coffee i'm all ears as i would suspect many of our listeners will be as well thanks for a great show well i don't want to keep everyone in suspense um i have promised leo that the next time i come up to petaluma i'm going to specifically arrange to make him a cup of coffee using my formula so that we have another person's opinion because so far as i have said before this is the coffee i drink i mean i've i've got it right here and i've been drinking it and when i've 
shared it with people. I've said, here, like, taste this. They're like, is this coffee? I mean, they can't even believe how sm- smooth and perfect it is. But so here's the deal. I mean, it's not a big, it's not a big mystery. Um, I did search for it for a while. I, the way I got to here was I was making what Starbucks calls Americanas um, or Americanos um, at home. I have a commercial espresso machine. And so I would nuke a, a large mug of, hot, of water, making it hot water, and then drop the espresso directly into the hot water. I'm big on not having the espresso go into a little shot glass because it immediately mm. starts to oxidize and goes from like light brown to black and then it becomes very bitter. I don't know how anybody would, would want to just drink espresso that's been sitting around in a cup for a while. But by, by having it drop immediately from the from the filter holder into the coffee, it gets diluted and it's protected from the oxygen. And so that I was making a very nice cup of coffee. The problem was it only makes one cup. And so then you're going back you know, if you want to have like, you know, five cups over the course of the day, you're like going back there all the time. So what I ended up evolving to was to use Starbucks espresso bean and drip brew that. So huh. my formula is pretty simple. I, I have a burg <laughs> I have a burr grinder and I've got the one that I told Leo about. I don't remember the model number now, but it's I chose it because it has no reservoir. Uh, the beans drop right through it down in, in, in um, into the coffee filter. So I take I think it's one ounce. I don't remember the amount, but I have a a, a measuring deal. You know, essentially for like um, about five cups of coffee. And I, I take, so I take the beans, grind them through this. So they're, you know, they grind and drop right into the filter. And then I just do a drip brew, a, a sort of a small, sort of like a half pot. It's a, and it's also the, the, um, the drip brewer that I've talked to Leo about, the, the little simple coffee percolator. That, and it uses the, the little Melita uh, disposable. I use the brown filters because I don't want the, the, the bleach. Mm-hmm. Um, and drops right through into the pot, and then I transfer it to something that keeps it hot for hours at a time, uh, and that's it. So anyone who's interested, you, you you need a good grinder. You can't use one of those little spinning blade things that just fractures Ugh. the beans. God, and, it know, hurts me just thinking about that. It, yeah, I know, it's that. horrible. So you need that so you get a consistent grind. I've got mine set to three, whatever that means, which is sort of large. I think because you don't also want it to be ground too fine, or you get the you get a, a more bitter result. So anyway, I'm I will um, do all this next time I'm with Leo. Hand him a cup and see what he thinks. Um, and in the meantime, anyone who wants to experiment, just buy a bag. You can get a one pound bag of espresso bean. You don't want it pre-ground espresso bean, unless you don't have a grinder, in which case they could grind it. Then you could run home and and give it a try and see, <laughs> see what you think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that, this idea of the of the grinder that goes right into the filter because I have a burr it's, grinder as well, and I've been meaning to replace it because uh, it's old and it's it's and it's also really loud, and it goes into this plastic thing that it you dump right. the coffee. Uh, it's it's not good. So I I, I, lo- I love that. I, if you remember what brand that is, I'd be curious. I will. Simon Comeau Martel in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, wonders about Touch ID on the new iPhone uh, 5S. There were definitely people earlier in the chat room wanting to know this too. 
What's your take on the new Touch ID technology by Apple, Steve? What's its impact on the device disk encryption? Historically, the pin slash password was used to protect the encryption key. How can we fit a fingerprint reader in the equation? It will never scan exactly the same thing twice. Also, should we worry about someone lifting prints from a desk or from the phone itself to try unlocking it? Okay, so at this point, all we have is conjecture. I've, I'm looking for and have not yet found. So I w- I'd like to enlist the entire listenership of the podcast in the, and as, a, as a dragnet for information. I'm really curious to know exactly what Apple has done. Um, Simon is right that certainly every time we put our finger on the scanner – it's going to be a different image. What we we seem to know that it uses detail extraction. So it's not actually using the image. It's using the 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 well-known fingerprint details, loops and whorls and and breaks in the in the ridges of fingerprints, which are uniform over time. So it's it's. The idea is that you train it by putting your finger on the scanner many times, giving it the same fingerprint over and over and over. It so-called learns that. So, so what it's doing is it's not memorizing the image. It's memorizing the features. And then it decides that your fingerprint has the following features in, the, in, a, in a certain topology, that's what it memorizes, and then that's what it no doubt uses to, to match with in the future in order to unlock your disk encryption. So it can't, I would be very skeptical if it used that as the key directly. Because, for example, you'd never be able to retrain it with a different one. There's got to be mm. a, an intermediate step where it says, is this the same one I've been taught to accept. And if the answer is yes, then it uses that. And, you know, maybe it turns those features into a hash and then it uses the hash. We just, we don't know how, we don't have enough details yet. Um, But it it certainly is the case that that it goes through some, some iteration of, of like feature recognition. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no. Am I right? I thought I remembered them saying that you, even though you have the fingerprint, you still set a normal password as sort of a backup to yes. the, the fingerprint not working. So could that be what it's relying on for the consistent behavior and, and just working the way it's always worked? Well, yeah. So the idea would be it it has a, it has a template for what it has seen. We we I was glad to see that from day one, Apple recognized the privacy concerns. So. If you and I hope they will, they will like put all of our minds at ease by just telling us what they've done. They probably have some patent stuff, but they may have to wait for. But we need to know. But for example, if you if you had a means of representing the topology of the features, so that you know loops and whorls and gaps are mapped and that's invariant over time, then you could hash that to create a, 
a hash key that was invariant over time. So, you know, at this point, we just sort of have to make things up yeah. and wait till we hear exactly what they've done. I, I love that they've done this because, you know, I mean, I, I, I watched Leo and Sarah reacting to the news as it was happening, you know, and Sarah, you know, talked about how she hates having to enter her long, complex, secure password every single time she wants to buy something. She just wants yeah. to put her finger on the phone, which, you know, I, I do too. Java 678 in the chat room uh, gave us a link to one of the Apple patents about Ooh. that they have that they have used for fingerprint identification. We still don't know if that's what they implemented, though, because right. it shows things like near field communication and stuff involved, uh, which are not in the iPhone 5S. Right. We got one last uh, question here. MacArthur in Virginia shares some thoughts about the randomness of Intel's RNG. Intel claims that it's purely random. But they haven't proven that it isn't not random. They've only shown that it appears to be random enough. You can never prove that something is random. All you can do is prove that something isn't. So all they've shown is that it doesn't break down and lose to the tests that we currently have. Thus, they've shown that it seems to be random. They've shown that it is enough random that it doesn't show bias and seems to be random. Any RNG can't be proven to be random. It can only be proven to not be random. Now, <laughs> while I do think that Intel's fab is probably the best in the world, they can't verify every single one. That's the, the, uh, the words of our, our writer, MacArthur, here. Uh, they can't prove every single one. That's why the Linux kernel doesn't rely solely on Intel's RNG. They mix in Intel's RNG products with its own internal pool of random data. The kernel gets it from network traffic latency, all of them, HDD access times, temperature from the various parts, and a few other places. So they currently mix that data from Intel's RNG with that data to make it stronger and more random. So even if Intel put a backdoor in it, it would never result in completely unrandom data since the kernel stores that data in RAM, and the CPU could go through and try to turn the data to all zeros, but the kernel would likely reject that result as it tries to keep that data as random as possible. The last I remember reading, the kernel held about 4 to 16 kilobits of random data on the dev random device. I believe that the BSD kernels use a similar approach. The Linux kernel, and as far as I know, the various BSD kernels, don't just accept what Intel feeds them. They use it as an additional source of random data. So all Intel is doing is making that data more random. And at worst, they're keeping it as strong as it was before. You know, we've talked a lot about randomness because it's crucial for cryptography. And one of the in fact, we highlighted it last week uh, when, uh, when we were looking at the accusations that the NSA through the NIST may have deliberately subverted and almost never used and no one really cares about it anyway, random number generator. But the, but the idea that, that you might have something non-random is a huge concern. I, I love this notion of of mixing random sources. I've used it myself. Uh, listeners with a really good memory will remember when I was messing with the off-the-grid paper-based uh, mm -hmm. encryption system. Yeah. I, needed, I needed an ultra-high entropy pseudo-random number generator. Not that, that, you know, 256 bits wasn't enough, except that there are so many possible... Um, Latin squares of that size 
I mean, just phenomenal number of possible ones that if I used a random number generator with a small amount of entropy, it couldn't have that many states and it couldn't give me nearly as many Latin squares are as, po- as possible. Anyway, the point is that I, I have GRC provide entropy out of whatever it was, 256 or 512 bits, and I have JavaScript in the user's machine provide it and mix them together. It's it's one of the coolest things about randomness is that, and this is sort of what we see with the XOR feature, it's it's sort of one way to think of it is you can't unscramble an egg. Um, Mm -hmm. once Once you've got something random with a lot of entropy, there's no way, nothing you can do to it can lower the level of entropy it has. It, it's it's got it, and all you can do as you add more is increase the level that it already has. Which is why the idea that that the the kernels would take sources that they already maintain, things like packet arrival times, hard disk, uh, you know, completion events, use high resolution timers to watch things happen. And that's going to mean technically they aren't absolutely random, but, you know, it's what they are is absolutely unknowable to an attacker. So so you take all those different sources and by all means, if the Intel chip wants to throw some bits at you, take it in. It can't hurt you in any way. Even if it sent all zeros, you'd still have all the other random sources that are pooling their randomness. And, you know, this whole notion of when he talks about the kernel having 4 to 16K, the, the, that talks about the total entropy in a so-called entropy pool. And as you pull randomness out of the pool, it diminishes the pool size. And then uh, as other events happen in real time, it begins, it begins to replenish the pool size. So we, it's funny how far we've come in our understanding of what a good random number generator is. Back not that long ago, really, um, we were using a simple equation, a, you know, like a linear, what's called a linear congruential pseudo random number generator, which just was an addition and a multiplication and produced an absolutely deterministic series of numbers. I mean, just an awful source of random numbers. But that's what people used. Today, you know, we've, we've gone from much more sophisticated pseudo-random numbers to, to this notion of, of an, a pool of entropy that has a known size that we are pulling from and adding to, you know, as, as, it's, as the entropy is being needed and being replenished. So anyway, I just, uh, the whole notion of entropy is key to, to cryptography because ultimately we're protecting secrets and it's a random number that is the secret that we don't know. Yeah. And as somebody pointed out in the chat room, it, it takes something like a black hole if you want to unscramble an egg. So that's, that's pretty, <laughs> pretty good security for now anyway, for the foreseeable yep. future. I want to go take a dip in the pool of entropy now. Be more safe. I wonder well, what color it is. Probably. Yeah. I wonder what kind of swimsuit I should wear. Maybe it's maybe it's seventeen percent gray. That probably is. It probably changes. Well, I guess you know, it just fluctuates. 
Well, Steve, that it brings us to the end of a, of a great episode of Security Now. I'm so glad I get to do uh, a couple more of these with you, though. It's going to be really fun, yeah. Yeah, I will be here for two more weeks. Leo is on vacation. He'll be back in a couple of weeks. Meanwhile, folks, if you have not, I can't imagine you have it, but if you have not gone to GRC.com and checked out all of the amazing things, you're talking about the Haystacks thing that you were doing. You're talking about the password thing, the new version of SpinRite, Shields Up still going on there. You got to go check that out, folks. Any, any last thing to mention before we head out of here? Um, only that I do keep asking people to send your thoughts and questions to grc.com slash feedback. Um, and also I will say again, um, what we don't have is a beta of SpinRite 6.1. What we do have is a very active group that's been playing with the code that I've been writing over the last couple of months. People, I, I get email from people saying, how do I, you know, join that grc.com slash discussions will will explain how you participate in our forums we don't have web-based forums we're old school nntp news groups um the whole population of people really prefer that i like it um it just seems i don't know more more hardcore and and you know it's more about being down to business also very high quality posts and and people hang out there so you'll have to go to grc.com slash discussions in order to to understand how to hook up to our nntp server uh you can't go to news.grc.com with a web browser there's no web server there it's you have to have a i think thunderbird has one i use gravity on windows i know that there's nntp news readers for uh, for apples, I use something called News Tap on my iOS devices, on my i i on my various iPads and iPhone. Uh, I like it a lot. So, anyway, uh, we'd love to have people show up. The more testers we have, the merrier. And it's a lot of fun to to participate in uh, nailing down this code. Absolutely, go check it out, folks, and don't forget about our show notes too at twit.tv/sn. We'll see you next time. Security.